Good morning once more. If you would open your copy of the scriptures with me to Nehemiah chapter 6, where we will continue right where we left off in the story. If you'll recall, in the last phase of the story, Nehemiah, well, a couple of things happened. Nehemiah put a stop to the oppression that was happening, the oppression of the poor by appealing to the spirit of the law over the letter of the law. And then he successfully endured two conspiracy attempts, one to do him harm explicitly and the other to see him sin and call his reputation into question. And he triumphs over those things. Those things do not work. This man, Nehemiah, hey, he cannot get a break. The man cannot get a break in this rebuilding project. Challenges from without and within. And that's where we left off uh, during our time together last week. And so we come to verse 15, which says, and so the wall was finished. On the 25th day of the month of Elul in 52 days, 52 days, that's getting to work. There's been a lot of commentators and people, oh, well, this is an emendation. The text might not have been, has been corrupted. No, it was a different number. The best manuscripts say 52 days. They rebuilt this whole wall around Jerusalem and it caused the people in surrounding regions to take note. Look at verse 16. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. They're saying, wow. They're getting it done up there in Jerusalem. Maybe they actually have a real God with them. There is something more than just people working hard. Perhaps God is with them. And so they had a, a fear came over them. And then in 17 through 19, we, we zoom out. And Nehemiah tells us something about what was happening during that season uh, in a larger, in a little bit larger scope. Moreover, in those days, that's the language that gives it away. Remember, he was governor for at least 12 years. In those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Ju Judah were bound by oath to him, because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Ara, and his son Jehonahan had taken the daughter of Meshullam, the son of Berechiah, as his wife. So the translation is this. Tobiah and his son, we learn, actually married Jewish women. Very interesting. So there are people there who have particular obligations to him. Some are financial obligations. Some per perhaps some are semi-political. There's commercial interests at stake with Tobiah. Um, and then there is, as I mentioned, the, the social interest because of some of the marrying. Uh, the, the, that is them marrying uh, into, the, into the Jewish people. And they also, in verse 19, spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported my good words to him. So these are kind of these go-betweens. So, so that gives us a little bit different perspective. So when they're saying Sanballat and Tobiah are conspiring against us, these aren't just names out there. A lot of people know this guy. They're like, oh yeah, we know him. We're, we understand we're, we're in particular arrangements with Tobiah financial or, or otherwise. And so it sounds like they, because they have some skin in the game here, they're trying to talk him up a little bit to Nehemiah, to Nehemiah. And so they spoke of his good deeds in my presence. I, I, I promise he's not really that bad of a guy. I saw him, you know, give him puppy water or something. He's, he's, he's not as bad as you're saying he is perhaps, 
Um, but they also reported Nehemiah words to him. But interestingly, the only thing that Tobiah actually says in the written word Nehemiah records, the very last sentence of the chapter, and Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid. So sure, yeah, they might say this and that. Oh, Tobiah, so on and so forth. Yeah, yeah, he's not that bad of a guy. But all of his written correspondence were told us to simply make Nehemiah afraid. And so he says that when the wall had been built, moving on into chapter 7, which is an odd chapter insertion there anyways, um, he had, when he had done everything, when he had uh, built the wall, installed the gates, he gave his brother, he says, I gave my brother, verse 2, Hanani and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem, for he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. So he appoints two administrative officials over Jerusalem. So we're trying to settle into something like a new normal, and there's two administrative officials, one, uh, particularly his brother, uh, Hanani, who is the guy, if you remember from chapter 1, who came with his uh, who, who came and, and, and basically gave Nehemiah the sad report in the beginning in chapter 1. Same name mentioned. There's every reason to believe it's actually his brother and not just a Jew. And then he gives some instructions for the new normal. Listen to what he says. He says, I said to them, let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they are still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so not the army, and point guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard posts and some in front of their own home. So here, here's, what, here's what he's saying. We still don't know if we're going to get attacked. And basically what this means is we're going to have the gates closed at the most vulnerable times of the day. When the gates are open, we're going to have people on guard. And what he essentially does is appoints a little neighborhood watch there. In Jerusalem, you have some people who are going to be at their guard, but you're going to have some people who are going to be standing by their house. And this are, these are inhabitants of Jerusalem here. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants, some at their guard posts and some in front of their homes. And we're only going to open the gate when we are not at a vulnerable point, particularly and, and especially when everyone is, is sleeping. We're not going to do that. But there is nevertheless a remaining challenge. The wall has been built and the primary kind of physical goal has been met, but there's still a challenge, and we see it in verse 4. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been rebuilt. And this strongly connects to the next section. It says that, my God put it in my heart, verse 5, to assemble the nobles and officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. Why? Notice it's not a sinful census like David took. The Lord puts it into his heart. But why would you do that? I would say, particularly in light of verse 4 in the beginning of chapter 11, which we're not going to get to today, the, the, the purpose is to repopulate Jerusalem. He's trying to see who do we have on the roster here? Who do we have? Who's going, who can we plug in where? Who's got land where? I need to understand what we're working with. And as he has that put into his heart, he actually finds the genealogy from Ezra chapter 2, which Stephen already worked through. So you remember in Ezra chapter 2, they're like, we need to figure out who's legit and who's not. We excluded a couple people because they couldn't prove their lineage and the priesthood. That's what he stumbles upon. This very long genealogy in which makes up almost all of chapter 7, is just that. Verse 6, These were the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried into exile. And they returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. Then it mentions Zerubbabel 
and Joshua. It mentions that first wave of people who came back. And then you have the list, the same list, basically, that's in Ezra chapter 2. If you skip over to verse 66, you're going to get two things. Number one, you get the totals. They give the sum totals of those folks. He gives the sum totals. And then he just points out people who had given certain amounts to the work there. So, for example, in verse 70, some of the heads of fathers' houses gave to the work. Verse 71, and some of the heads of fathers' houses gave into the treasury of the work. It says what the rest of the people gave there in verse 72. Concluding with verse 73, which is where we started in verse 4. So the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people, the temple servants, and all Israel, which is basically everybody, almost everybody, lived in their towns. And when the seventh month had come, the people of Israel were in their towns. So here's the situation. We got the temple rebuilt. Yes. We have the wall rebuilt in 52 days. Wow. And yes. But now we've got a city that's ready for business, but no one lives in it. But you can't have a ghost town. Because Zion isn't a ghost town. So we have to fix this. But you can't go about fixing it the wrong way with the wrong people with wrong hearts. So what happens in chapter 8 is nothing short of remarkable and it only only gets better. In chapter 8, we are told that all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. So not the temple, because then that would exclude some people. So everyone is there before the water gate. And they told, and then who shows back up in the book of Nehemiah? It's our buddy Ezra. Ezra, the scholar and the priest. Ezra shows back up. He's been silent. He's been totally absent. Ezra shows up. They told Ezra to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. And so Ezra the priest, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. There was kind of an age-appropriate audience here, people who could understand the process, what was about to be said, and that's going to make sense given how intense this is going to be. And he read, verse 3, he read from it, the book of the law, facing the square before the water gate from early morning, early morning until midday. It's a long reading in the presence of those men and women and those who, and others of those who could understand. And all the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. This is the word of the Lord being proclaimed by Ezra, opening a law for the people. So Ezra stands on a platform to do this, to increase visibility, his ability to project, and, and perhaps even representing that, that the word of God is being spoken over people, which historically has been what the pulpit has been for too, that people sit under the, 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 the word of God. That's kind of the idea there. Ezra stood on a wooden platform that had been made for the purpose, and you'll see that beside him stood a bunch of folks, and they would have helped do the reading because this, is, this would have been so long. Okay, so they would have occasionally joined in and helped. Verse 5, And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people, meaning on the platform in the context. Um, as he opened it, all the people stood. Remember, this is a long service here. So if you're one of those people who gets your lower back going like this after standing a while, okay, this is why it's age-appropriate assembly. Okay? People are standing, particularly for the law. The word of the Lord is being 
read and proclaimed, and Ezra starts off with a doxology. Ezra, bless the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, verse 6, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. This is an incredible scene. When do you remember something like this in the history of Israel? This is an amazing scene, and it only gets better. We learn in verse 7 that something unique is happening, and that we actually have some little small group leaders, kind of interpreters, going around and making sure that everyone understands the law. Because this is going to be not like what we heard about in the Minor Prophets, this kind of empty religious ritualism. No, they want everyone to actually understand. Listen to what it says. You have a, a group of folks, in the back half of verse 7, helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. So we don't understand exactly the, you know, the arrangement, the exact logistics, or whatever the case may be, but you had people standing and listening, and then you had these guys who were going out, and perhaps there was a section of text read, and then this person kind of gives a paraphrase of it. I don't know, who knows? Maybe they answer some questions. It isn't clear, but they're trying to make sure that everyone understands what is being read. No one is sitting there just nodding their head and saying amen because they don't want to look bad in the greater Jerusalem area. They want everyone to understand and personally appropriate what is being read. And so we have some interpreters, some teachers who go out there to paraphrase, clarify, and interpret to give the sense so that the people understood the reading. So they're hearing this law proclaimed. It's being interpreted for them in case there was any uh, misunderstandings. And then there was a response to the people that it made sense. It made sense, but it was inappropriate for the occasion. We're on the first day of the seventh month. This is the month we're going to celebrate the, uh, uh, the, uh, the atonement, and, it's, and we're going to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. So listen, look what happens. Chapter, uh, verse 9, and Nehemiah, who was the governor and Ezra the priest and scribe and all the Levites who taught the people said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. Wait, what? what? Why are people mourning and weeping? Well, I'll tell you why they're mourning or weeping. Because they just heard the law. They just heard how to live rightly before God. They just learned what, how to live when God is in the camp. They just learned how, to, how you're supposed to live as God people, and they realize, guess what? They're not doing hardly any of it right. They fall so miserably short of what they should be, all they're doing is weeping and saying, well, I understand, maybe in theory this is good news, but not for us. Not for us. Look how fall, far short that we fall. And so they're weeping. And so then he, he says to them, which is don't say, if anyone's actually weeping and you're kind of personal, don't say this to them. But he says, go your way, eat the fat, and drink sweet wine. And send portions to anyone who has nothing ready, for this day is holy to the Lord. He says, no, 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 there's something here. Eating the fat, eat your best meat, drink your sweetest wine, and that person who wasn't prepared or perhaps they couldn't afford it, make sure they get in on it too. It's time to party. It is time to party. Bring the wine, bring the best meat, and give some to the other folks. We are all partying. This is not time to mourn. This is day holy to the Lord. And then you get the famous verse here that always gets taken out of context. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord 
is your strength. Do not be grieved because the joy of the Lord is your strength. Okay, so in the context, what does this mean? So I've just heard the law. I understand how far short I fall. I am grieving over my sin, but there is a joy that I'm supposed to have in the Lord. Why? Well, listen to what one commentator says, and it's going to be even clarified in the next chapter. The joy of the Lord was the joy each Israelite felt at these festivals as he identified himself afresh with the community of God's people and so appropriated in his own generation the salvation once bestowed upon his ancestors. In this act of identification, which took the form of a joyful celebration and worship, lay his protection from the judgment that might otherwise fall on though outside of the covenant. Ezra therefore encouraged the people to regard his reading of Scripture in this light. Though it might challenge their consciences, it was to be regarded first and foremost as a declaration of God's grace to his people. So you know what part of that law is? It's an unfaithful people, and God continues to pursue. And it's unfaithful people, and God continues to pursue. And God covenants with them and says, you are my people, and you are a holy nation, before he gives them a law to obey. There is a joy of the Lord because it means that I have a God who is, the people are saying, I have a God who continues to pursue us despite us falling woefully short. And so it doesn't depend on my performance here. It doesn't depend on my performance. And therefore, there's a joy in the Lord that can only come through looking at your own kind of, your own sin. More on that later in the application. A certain kind of joy of the Lord, the only real kind of joy that goes through my own sin. To Jesus. And so what happened? The Levites calmed all the people. This is their pastoral word to these folks. They calmed all the people. Verse 11 saying, be quiet and not, not shutting them up. Just repeating in the context what's already been said. This day is holy. Do not be grieved. Verse 12. And all the people went their way to eat and to drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared them. They understood that there is hope past my failure. They understood that there is a God who pursues me despite falling woefully short. And so I have a reason for joy. That will be my strength to stand against my condemning conscience and the condemnation of the law in light of my failure. But here's what happened. You have some folks the next day when everyone else went back to work who said, we need a little bit more. We need a little bit more of this. It was the people who didn't have to work in the exact same way, some of the influencers and some of the more gray hair folks. And their appetite apparently has been wet, W-H-E-T, to be clear, by the reading and the interpretation of the law. We want, we got to get in on this. So what they do is they call a little Bible study, a little seminary weekender class or something led by none other than who? Ezra. Call Ezra in. We need to hear more about these. On the second day, verse 13, the heads of the fathers' houses of all the people with the priests and the Levites came together. You got the heads of house, priests and Levites. They came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. We need to know more about this. Who better than Ezra? He's right here. We heard him yesterday. It was great. He was great. We want to know more. And so they decide to press in. And what do they find? And they found written in the law of the Lord to command, that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month. This is the tabernacles or booths. And that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild myrtle, 
wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths at is, as it is written. And so a booth is kind of like, looks like if you just see the pictures of them, they're like kind of stick looking huts and there's greenery and it just looks like almost a kid's fort or something almost. And that would be what you dwelled in during the feast, excuse me, of tabernacles. Started on the 15th day, it was the second day. So they, hey, we got a little runway here. But we need to get this message out because people have to go get all this stuff. So that's exactly what they did. They went to go do the Bible study. They said, wow, we have to observe this. Let's give people runway to get everything together, prepare for the feast, but also um, prepare their booths. And so the people went out, verse 16, and brought them. And they made booths for themselves, each on his roof and in their courts, and in the courts of the house of God, and the square of the water gate, and the square of the gate of Ephraim. Booths, booths everywhere. There's booths all over Jerusalem because this is full buy-in. Everyone is in. Everyone is participating. And all the assembly, verse 17, all of the assembly of those who had returned to captivity, all of them made booths and lived in the booths. For from the days of Jeshua, the son of Nun, who is the Joshua who took the promised land, to that day, the people of Israel had not done so. And there was great Rejoicing. Now, just a brief, brief clarifier here for someone paying really, really close attention. The verse, if you read it very quickly, makes it sound like the Feast of Booths had never been celebrated since Joshua took the land. Isn't that kind of what you thought when, you, when I read that? Well, if you remember, in Ezra chapter 3, which is part of the very same book originally, Ezra and Nehemiah being one book, they celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles. There were people who were there who, was, who were still here at this time. He's not saying this is the first time it's ever been done. He's saying never has such uh, never has such a celebration happened. Verse 19, it hasn't been done. It wasn't all in. It wasn't this way. It wasn't this robust. And day by day, from the first day to the last, he read from the book of the law of God. So every single day, they kept the, the feast seven days. And on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. Um, Josiah reports his observation of the Passover in a similar way in 2 Kings 23. Listen to the way he says it, and which is another all-in Passover. Keep the Passover to Lord your God. This is after he has found the law, as it is written in the book of the covenant. For no such Passover had been kept since the days of the judges who judged Israel, or during, all the, during the days of the kings of Israel or the kings of Judah. Okay? There is an idea, so it's a similar language here. There is something particularly robust, particularly in, 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 a, in terms of participation, in terms of rigor, in terms of uh, being in accordance with the law because you had Ezra there. Not, it hadn't been done like this since that time. That seems to be what he is suggesting fairly clearly, I think, even though it initially sounds misleading. In chapter 9, things only get better. Now, on the 24th day... Of the month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. So they are mourning. This is national mourning. They are in repentance. And the Israelites, in verse 2, separate themselves out from the people of the land. Why? Because they are going to confess not their, only their sins, but the sins of their ancestors. And the people who are with them, they, they don't have them as fathers, so they're obviously not going to participate in that particular part of the exercise. So they separate themselves out from the foreigners and confess the sins and the iniquity of their fathers, verse 2. And they stood up in their place and read from, and the book of the law again. They read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. All right, quarter. 
And for another quarter of the day, they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. Again, as I always qualify, I understand I grew up in Alabama, but that equates to a half a day. A half a day, again. This is serious. These people are serious about what they are doing. The Levites were standing on the stairs. They're crying out in a loud voice, and they finally say at the back half of verse 5, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from Olam to Olam, from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. And then what they do, and this is something that is so good to do yourself, yourself, excuse me, is to remind yourself of your own story and how God has worked in the story. That is exactly what they do. They preach a sermon right here. So I'm not going to preach this part. I'm just going to read it. And I want you to imagine that you are one of these people assembled here in this particular quarter of the day being reminded of who you are and who God is. You are the Lord alone, starting in verse 6. You have made the heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the sea and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them. The host of heaven worships you. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and bought, brought him out of Ur, the Chaldeans, and, have, and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made, the, made with him the covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite. And you have kept your promise, for you are righteous. And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea, performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land, for you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers. And you made a name for yourself, as it is to this day. And you divided the sea before them, so they went through in the midst of the sea on dry land. And you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters. By a pillar of clouds you led them in the day, by a pillar of fire in the night to light for them the way in which they should go. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments. And you made note of them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by your servant Moses. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of a rock for their thirst. And you told them to go in, possess the land that you had sworn to give them. But, verse 16, they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their necks and did not go or did not obey your commands. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you would perform among them, but they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you were a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and did not forsake them. Even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, This is your God who brought you up out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies, you and your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud led them in the way, did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way by which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. And you gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted to them every corner. So they took possession of the land of Sion, the king of Heshbon, the land of Og, king of Bashan. And you multiplied their children as the stars of heaven. You brought them into the land that you had told their fathers to enter and possess. And so the descendants went in and possessed the land. And you subdued before them 
the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hand with their kings and the peoples of the land, that they might do with them as you would. And they captured fortified cities in a rich land and took possession of houses full of all good things, cisterns already hewn out, vineyards, olive orchards, and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted in themselves in your great goodness. Nevertheless, verse 26, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn back to and warned them to turn back to you. They committed great blasphemies. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. In the time of their suffering, they cried out to you and you heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercy, you gave them saviors, which is a reference to judges in the book of Judges, who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But after they had rest, they did evil again before you, verse 28, and you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven. And many times you delivered them according to your mercies. Many times you delivered them. And you warned them in order to turn them back to your law. Yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through the prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercies you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. Now therefore, O God, our God, the great, mighty, and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings and our princes and our priests and our prophets and fathers and all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you've dealt faithfully, and we acted wickedly. Our kings, our princes, our priests and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them. Even in their own kingdom and amid your great goodness that you gave them in the large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. Behold, we are slaves this day in the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves. And its rich yield goes to the king who we've set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please. And we are in great distress. The history of God proclaimed over the people of God. And how do they respond? How do they respond? Verse 38. Because of all of this, we make a firm covenant in writing on the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. I'm a little behind on my little slides for y'all. Right? Written document, public accountability, seals of the leaders, especially when you look at chapter 10, verse 1, and Nehemiah is the first person signing. Written document, publicly affirmed by the leaders, and in verse 28, you realize that everyone gets in. The amount of categories he uses is almost humorous. He's trying to say there's no one who didn't get in. 
The rest of the people, okay, so now we're already at, right? The rest of the people already means categorically everybody else, okay? The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who separated themselves from the peoples of the land of the law of their God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, and all who have knowledge and understanding. Okay, it's basically everybody. Verse 29, they enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law. That was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our God and His rules and His statutes. Sounds like what happens at Mount Ebal, where you have the covenant curses cried out. They're entering into an oath with God, publicly stipulations in a written document. If we do not do these things, we want to endure the curse of God as we have already once done. We're going to make an oath to walk in God's way. This is amazing language. Again, if you're familiar with the story of Israel and the history of the Bible, when do you remember this? This is it. Isn't it? Isn't this what the prophets have prophesied about? There's going to be a remnant that's going to return and they're going to love God. They're going to know God. Things are coming to a point here. And we, we need. We, they say we're not going to give our daughters to the peoples of the land. And if the people bring the... The land bring in goods or grain on the Sabbath to sell. This is verse 31. We will not buy from them on the Sabbath day or on a holy day. We'll forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt, which is the year of Jubilee. We are going to observe the year of Jubilee, but if you if you remember back from chapter 5, it's very likely that that wasn't being observed, which was causing some of the financial problems. And then the second half of the obligations all relate to the temple. Verse 28, so we're gonna, we also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of our, the house of our God so that the offerings can be made. You skip down to verse 35, we obligate ourselves to bring the fruit, first fruit of our ground and the first fruit of all fruit of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord. Okay, um, they understand, verse 37, that it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all of our towns where we labor. And the priest, verse 38, the son of Aaron shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes. The Levites shall bring up the tithe of the tithes to the house of our God and to the chambers of the storehouse, which is where they would keep all of it. For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the choir, the singers. We will not neglect the house of our God. And we write this publicly and we affirm this publicly. And we are saying in doing so, not only making an oath to do so, but should we not, we are calling down upon us the, the curses of God. Now, the, the, how, could you, how could you ask for a better outcome than this? We started a story about rebuilding a wall, and not only did we get that, and we not only did we get God making a great name for himself, and not only are there things in place to repopulate the city kind of going on, but you have the people who are not satisfied with just that. You have them pressing into the law, wanting to hear the law, repenting of their sin, repenting of the sins of their ancestors, recovenanting with God as it's not everything that we have been waiting for. This is what the prophets promised. This, is, this shouldn't be unexpected to anyone. Of course, promises, the promises of the prophets come true. Why is any, No one should be surprised. I've, I've just been saying that for rhetorical value. This is what we should be expecting. On the other side, there's going to be judgment, and then there's going to be a remnant, and there's going to be a righteous group of folks, and here it is. 
So how's the story going to end? There's only three more chapters. I have to come back next time we hear the rest of the story, though. But what do we, how do we apply this? Again, leaning on my big A, little A distinction here. I want to turn back to that often used verse, Nehemiah 8.10. I'm hearing the weight of the law, understanding my failures before it. And I hear, do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. This joy very, very clearly comes to fruition in the person of Jesus Christ. I'm not saying there's a, there's a lot to be joyful for back then, but I would say that we, we have more to be, even more to be joyful for. An indwelling spirit raised up with Christ, sins forgiven, debt paid, united with Christ, identified with him in some mystical way that I can't even explain, guaranteed an inheritance, the joy of the Lord finds its fulfillment. It's crystallized in the person and work of Jesus and the promises of the gospel itself. So my first question is this, in application, how do you cultivate the joy of the Lord in your own life? When I say the joy of the Lord, I don't confuse that with someone who has a bubbly countenance, who's, all, who's smiling. That's great. I love the gift of a joyful countenance. Some of you have it. I won't say who because it embarrass you, but I love it. But I'm not talking about having a certain personality or even just a particular countenance. The joy of the Lord. Is that a category for you that sounds like a Christian slogan, if you're honest? Like, if you're honest, is that a Christianism? Is that a category that perhaps you need to spend a little bit more time even thinking about? It's like, okay, I have my, my salvation and my sin and my this and that. If someone asks me about, like, the joy of the Lord. It's like, I'm not quite even sure how to process that. Or maybe for you, you think, well, that's for somebody else, but not, not for me. Maybe it's for a certain personality type, but I, I don't have the joy of the Lord or whatever that is. I don't smile a lot. Or I don't, again, not what I'm talking about. Remember the joy of the Lord here. The appeal to the joy of the Lord is their pastoral move when people are grieving under the weight of their own failure. This isn't supposed to be a, a throwout. There is something real here. There is a deep-seated kind of joy that here is called the joy of the Lord. So what, how do you cultivate that joy? What are you doing? If you had to answer that question. And is that a category that needs a little bit more cultivating perhaps in your own life? First question. Here's the second question. In the absence of the joy of the Lord, for whatever reason, maybe, you don't, maybe it sounds like a slogan to you that's abstract, that doesn't give life or joy or whatever. Uh, maybe you don't know how to pursue that. Don't even know what that is. Do you, in the absence, substitute pseudo-joys? Pseudo-joys to cope with life in the absence of that. So, you know, I regrettably, I, I love my Sprite Zero. Okay? I cope with the absence of sugar by artificial sugar. Okay? Scratches the itch, but it's not quite the same. Although Sprite Zero is close, and I'm willing to die for that. Okay? It is the best one. Do you turn to sweet and low joys instead of the joy of the Lord? What are those sweet and low joys? I'm glad you asked. Let me give you just three examples as we close. Three examples. Some of us, do you tend to read the verse this way if you're honest functionally? Not in your theology, but your actual operation. Do you fit in any of these categories? Have you heard these in culture? And likely both. 
Three artificial strength givers. Sweet and low joys. The first, the joy of minimizing my sin and failures is my strength. The joy of minimizing my sin and failures is my strength. I want to one. Uh, I found something by a woman that gave it a little bit of publicity earlier uh, in the week. I know it'd be a hard word, but I want you to listen to this one woman, a Christian mom. The the ask the application is much wider than that, but I want you to listen to her talking about this. What do I functionally turn to? Listen to what she says in terms of minimizing sin. She says sometimes instead of cultivating hope in Christ, we muster up encouragement by minimizing our sin. We look back on a day filled with wasted time, impatient words, selfish motives, and angry responses, and we say to ourselves, don't worry, no parent is perfect, you're just doing the best you can. But the truth is, I don't always do my best. None of us does. Some days, I'm simply a bad mom. In those times, I don't need the false assurance that I'm doing the best I can because it's not even true. I need the hope that Jesus can cleanse me from my unrighteousness. If we want true freedom, freedom that cleanses us from unrighteousness, we must honestly name our unrighteousness. When we are being lazy in our parenting, we cannot just call it tiredness. When we're being harsh, we cannot just call it discipline. And when we are being selfish, we cannot call it self-care. Let me just caveat real quick. All of these are either good or innocuous categories. Okay? I hope you're taking care of yourself. Uh, is being tired wrong? Well, obviously not. Is discipline wrong? Of course it's not. It's a good thing. But sin, don't forget this, sin is always on a constant rebranding project. Sin knocks up to these, knocks up, it walks up to these houses, these conceptual, <laughs> these conceptual houses that are good things, self-care, tiredness, whatever, and goes... Can I get a t-shirt? I'm trying to go to good things and rebrand so I can be disguised. See, if I call myself things like self-care or some other cultural sacred cow, no one will, no one will point it out. If I can rebrand and call my sin something else, then I won't have to be held accountable for it. And so, of course, none of these things are wrong at all. Please don't think that. But there is no safe space away from sin. Sin will creep into every legitimate category. So the exhortation is don't, it's not to not be tired or not ever say that you're tired or don't use these words or don't care for yourself. It's you cannot sin and call it something else and it somehow not be sin or you escape accountability. She goes on. I don't like confessing details of my anger to women in my community group. I'd much rather be the stellar example of godly motherhood, imparting wisdom to all who listen. And even when I do confess sin, I'm tempted to subtly undermine its seriousness. It's far easier to explain that I was just having a hard day and then quickly pivot to my kid's guilt. Just like Adam and Eve, I point fingers. So do you know where I find my practical joy at 2 o'clock on Thursday, this particular person? By telling myself my sin is not that bad, especially given the circumstances. Hey, this is just natural. Anyone would do that. Just, it's not that big of a deal. I minimize my sin. And when I feel the combination, I feel failure. I say it's actually is not a big of a deal 
as, 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 as I was thinking. I'm quick to minimize, and it's a sweet and low. Notice it doesn't, it doesn't require really taking a very hard look at my brokenness either. None of them do. What about this one? The joy of manufactured self-esteem is my strength. Manufactured self-esteem is my strength. This one is so popular with, in the culture. We have the attributes of God, for example, and you can pray through those as that A part of adoration. That's one of many good practices is worshiping God for his goodness or his power, his, his wisdom, all the rest. This takes a different approach. This, I have an attributes list, but guess what? Here's the kick. It's mine. It's my attributes. I remind myself, I am strong. I am good. I help people. Uh, I have courage. I have done this. I give myself a pep talk. I, I feel my failures, but guess what? I can bump myself back up if I remind myself of who I am and the good things that I've done and my virtues. So we talk ourselves up and we recount our successes and our faithfulness and in order to kind of fabricate a self-esteem to stand against, to be our strength against our sense of failure and condemnation. But here's the thing. I mean, think about it. We're united to a conquering king. We'll inherit the earth and judge angels. And, and we would rather look in the mirror and give ourselves a, help, a self-help speech about how, how brave we are and how we serve at the soup kitchen. Folks, we don't need higher self-esteem. We need higher union with Christ's esteem. That's what we need. That's what we need. We don't need more people making themselves feel better about themselves, thinking they're better than they are. Even no, We need higher Christ union with Christ's esteem. And union with Christ's esteem will make you, in the best sense of the word, feel great about yourself. When you understand that identity, when you understand that joy, it'll make you feel great about yourself. But it doesn't go by reading off your attributes list and giving yourself your own little pep talk. But here's the thing, again, in order to do that, you have to take a look at the hideous nature of your own sin. Remember, the joy of the Lord in Nehemiah 8 comes through understanding my brokenness, but seeing the God on the other side who continues to come. And so many people, I'm just telling you as a pastor, will see themselves, they'll see the law, they'll see their failure, then there'll be like a couple of hallways that go off through the tunnel here, like shame, fear, miscellaneous, and then they get stuck right there. And they pull out their, sweet, their packets of sweet and low. And if you just, you have to keep walking through the sin to see the God on the other side that brings the joy of the Lord. Final artificial joy. The joy of comparative, yeah, the, 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 the joy, uh, I left out an of. The joy of comparative superiority is my strength. Hey, in Alabama, what was always the joke? At least we have Mississippi. Okay? If you're from Mississippi, I'm sorry. I know y'all said... Listen, I'm sure y'all said the same thing about Alabama, all right? But it would have been incorrect. Um, so the, compar- the joy of comparative superiority is my strength. Hey, listen, I know, I know I don't make the kind of money or have the kind of career that I want to, but I've got, at least I'm higher up on the ladder than so and so on and so forth. At least I can feel good about that. Yeah, I don't look like I want to. My body's not like I want to. I'm not as handsome or beautiful or whatever. But at least, hey, I've got a, at least I've got an edge on the field on this side of the room or something. But what about maturity? I understand I'm not the most mature person in the church, but I'm also I'm more mature than this. I understand there's a couple people who are like Christian superstars. I don't even compare myself to them. They're way off in the distance in the race. But but hey, I've got a I'm a, I'm ahead of a small little pack of people. Okay. 
Well, what about my stability and my brokenness? Hey, I'm not the most broken or, uh, you know, I understand I'm not the most stable person in the world. I understand that, but I'm way more, I'm way further along than this person. At least I can feel good about that. I had a conversation with a woman about a couple of years now. She was having a difficult time with her family. She was expressing some grief over that. And instead of asking for prayer or, or, or certainly not counsel, she said, she started talking about another family who was really, really struggling. And I would say in almost in the most objective sense possible in, a, in many, much more severe ways. And what she said in that moment, she said, at least you have this family, and I obviously will not say the name, to make you feel better about your own. And all I can say is, well, that's awful. But right there, those are the kinds of things that almost unconsciously and in small moments, the comparative superiority is my strength. At least I, I don't, I'm not good at much, but at least I can do the wordle game better than someone. We, 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 can, we, we can grasp onto the tiniest little things to make ourselves to help overcome our sense of inadequacies and failures. The joy of comparative superiority. So my exhortation is this. Do not take the bait. Don't take the bait for minimizing sin, the sweet and low joy. Or manufactured self-esteem or comparative joy. Find If you don't know how to do it, find someone. Talk to a small group leader, a friend, a pastor. What does it look like to pursue the joy of the Lord? And so that I, I promise you in the long run, a, st- a steady diet of sweet and low joy will make you worse, not better. Because you'll begin to develop an appetite for something that is that is going to wreck you or at the, perhaps even worse, lower the ceiling for what you would even be able to achieve in terms of mature, maturity or intimacy of the Lord, joy in the Lord because you've been snacking on sweet and low joy for so long. Oh, this is enough to get by at least. I don't feel a need to go much further. I'm kind of doing things okay. Don't do it. Don't buy it. Press into the joy of the Lord. Take an honest look at how much of a failure that you are, and make sure to keep walking once you get to that part of the tunnel because the God on the other side will come out and he will give you a joy that completely surpasses all uh, understanding. So it's my, it's not, that is not easy, uh, but it is a good word and it will bring joy and it will give you strength to stand against the condemnation of your conscience and against your shortcomings against the law of God. So let's close in prayer. God. We are a people who fall short, but as we read in Nehemiah chapter 9, you are a God who continues to pursue in your great mercy, in your great mercy, in your great mercy. And that gives us joy because we know we can't mess up bad enough to not have more mercy and more grace crystallized in the person of Jesus. Thank you. Thank you so much for these promises of the gospel come to fulfillment in the person of Jesus, the resurrection that we are united with a king, will inherit the earth, will judge angels. And so we don't need to talk ourselves up. We don't need to minimize our sin. We don't need to compare ourselves to other people when we feel our failure. We can press into more grace and more Jesus. So we pray you would give us the wisdom to do so well.